For the past three and some years now, we've been getting loud on this podcast, Dear White Women, where our stated mission is to help white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism without centering themselves in the process. And this summer, we've been specifically focused on answering the what can we do question that's often asked of us. And so we've been carefully releasing bite-sized pieces of our work, especially with regard to our recent book, Dear White Women, Let's Get Uncomfortable Talking About Racism, so that we can help white women and allies do this work in a very practical way. Then we got a gut punch last week, or depending on when you're hearing this, on June 24th, in the form of the Dobbs v. Jackson opinion from SCOTUS, which effectively overturned Roe v. Wade and left the regulation of abortion access up to, quote, elected officials of the states, end quote, which set off a number of trigger laws and leaves abortion and reproductive justice in general in jeopardy for anyone who has a uterus or any birthing person in this country. So when you heard or saw the Dobbs ruling, Sarah, how did that make you feel? I mean, I think you said it right, like the gut punch. You know, we knew that this was coming. But the reality is really tough to accept. And I was actually on my way to the airport to head out of town for a celebration of life for a family member. And one of my kids had just woken up and I was giving her a hug to say bye. But as she was coming down the stairs, the news flashed up that that, the decision had been handed down. And so here I am saying goodbye to my daughter, who is a teenager, and trying to will every muscle in my body to just focus on conveying like love and I'll miss you and all that sort of emotion. When in my heart and in my head, I was basically like screaming, like, I am so sorry that you are screwed. Like your generation has to fight so hard again for the rights that we now have you know, lost and that our foremothers fought for 50 years ago and that her peers are going to face such a different world than the one that you and I grew up during our most you know, potentially fertile of years. And so that was a really visceral for me, like reaction to the news. Like that was sort of how I heard it and was processing it. And, and it felt so many different feelings. How about you, Misasha? So first I want to thank you for sharing that. Cause I think your perspective as, you know, not only a daughter, a wife, but as a mother of daughters, right. Is one that I think is really important in this moment. And, you know, for me, first of all, to release an opinion like this on a Friday, which never happens in the Supreme Court, like decisions are not never handed down on Fridays, was particularly like just a slap in the face, I think, especially when you're considering that the Supreme Court doesn't remove rights, right? It normally confers rights, especially constitutional ones. And it made me think about, like you, the world that our kids are growing up in versus the world, because I was born four years after Roe, right, was decided. So this is a right that I've always had, and suddenly it's gone. And I ended up sitting my boys down in the parking lot of their camp, after camp, though I needed to deal with my own emotions, and telling them in very high-level terms what this meant. And that, in my head, I was thinking, like, their childhood has been a constant struggle um, and fight for their freedoms in ways that it shouldn't be. And as parents, we feel this viscerally, right? Or people who know kids feel this viscerally. And so I just wanted to convey to them that there's gonna be a lot of strength that has to come from their generation that I believe that they have, but that this fight is our fight 
together, but in the end, it is our fight for them in a lot of ways. So that's what I felt. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. Well, that. and you know, I think we had our individual, right, rage filled or continuing on rage filled days, right? But we also saw that outrage immediately, right, on that Friday, especially from a number of white women who took to both the streets and the social media to broadcast this outrage far and wide. And Sarah, I know you, we have had separate discussions about this, but I'd love for you to share some of what you were seeing when this happened. Yeah. You know, I thought you and I obviously exchanged like a billion texts behind the scenes of this weekly podcast. Conservatively, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think my phone actually stopped dinging <laughs> when Misasha texts me because it's like, dude, you have way too many conversations going back and forth between you guys. But one of the things that I remember texting you shortly after this happened, I was like in the airport meeting family, that sort of stuff. But I remember taking a screenshot of this because it said something, this meme said something to the effect of, I think next time you hear the anthem, what if all women took a knee? And I felt like angry at this because I felt like it was a like co-opting a different message, right? We all know Colin Kaepernick and the taking of a knee and it was protesting police brutality against black bodies. So you're stealing like a, a methodology and a message for white use that was supposed to be paying attention to black bodies. And then on top of that, you know, in this particular case, using a knee, yes, it brings attention to the issue, but like, does it change anything? No, it felt very, very performative. And so I did not like that. And I think I told you, I was like, I am making this a point to sort of say this nicely back on social media. I don't tend to engage very much on social media posts because I don't think that's the best place to actually have a real conversation. Like it's better to talk it through. But in this case, I was sort of holding a line, just pointing out that discrepancy because I didn't like that. And so that was one. The other thing that I'm seeing a lot of is like people posting Handmaid's Tale memes. And in some of them, there were even some that had like the back of a white woman's neck standing tall and looking forward. But then two women behind them were black and brown skinned, heads bowed and the fists up. There was so much wrong with that meme too. First of all, I think the Handmaid's Tale in general was also analyzed by, you know, it was written by Margaret Atwood. Like I read the book, I actually didn't, haven't watched the TV series, so I don't know how it shows up there, but like she never addressed race in her book. It was like this post-racial world where white women are centered in the storyline, but white women are experiencing in this fantasy oppressive world, a lot of the actual real historic experiences that black and brown women have had to go through right? Like their uterus, like just reproduction was controlled or like all of this stuff. So that was weird. And then I feel like for so long, it also showed that like people are saying, oh, you know, it's we're being oppressed. But I think white women had forgotten that black women and brown women have already been oppressed and we just haven't been paying as much attention. Right. And it's a different topic. But I feel like when banks, in particular, Wells Fargo, first took advantage of black people with their subprime loan mortgage formats. And this was in like 2004 to 2008 or nine, like that was, they were actually taken to court to prove that they had actually tested out these sort of predatory loan models on black people. And then ultimately they brought it to more people, more white people. And a lot of people got caught up in it and it caused that subprime mortgage crisis in like 07, 08. Like it contributed to a huge financial meltdown in our country, but it started with exploiting black people. And we didn't pay attention and it turned into bigger problems. So I just feel like this continues to be this pattern of, look, things are happening to women 
to black and brown women in particular, for so long, we should have seen this coming. And for white women to then say, you know, I mean, I think you said this too on the phone. It was like, okay, white women's rights have been taken back for now four days. Let's think about the decades and the centuries of exploitation and oppression that have happened for black and brown women. So I think, you know, we're going to talk a little later on in this show about things to stop doing and start doing. But I did notice those two gut reactions that were being posted on social media that I wasn't sure I fully embrace. Yeah, I love that you said that. And I love that we were able to have conversations about it, you know, not on this platform either, because I probably had even stronger reactions than you did. I think some of my texts were like, what? So yes, to all of that. And I think that what you say is so important about sort of the duration of this fight, right? And how long this fight has been going on and sort of the privilege that white people and white women have had in the ability to sort of look away from the fight because it hasn't directly impacted them in this way until now. Yeah. And I think just to say, we've said it in past episodes too, this is where you and I often talk about the need to slow down just for a minute instead of knee jerk, like reposting or sharing or or liking something on social media, for example, take a minute to think and engage your brain and say, what is this saying? What Could there be a potential different interpretation? Am I really, do I really believe in this? I think that's a really important thing for us to consider at this juncture, because we are going to intentionally have to break the current system. And if we're just sort of mindlessly doing things, thinking we're doing things, it's not going to work. We are not going to make any change that way. I love that. Yes. hundred percent. Yes. And as you were saying that, I was thinking about something that's been sort of shocking to me is that I've been hearing from a number of sources that like corporate white women aren't necessarily speaking up, especially the senior ones. And it reminded me of this, you know, story that took place to me when I was a fairly junior associate at a large law firm. And I remember a senior white female partner giving me this piece of advice where she said, you know, you have to play the game. And she was referring to playing sort of a man's game in a largely male dominated field. And, you know, at that time I said nothing, but in my head I was thinking, you know, this is some BS, right? Because That game was never designed for me to win or even succeed, and it still isn't. And, you know, she sort of positioned that game as being about gender, right? But it is much bigger than gender, as she or probably a lot of other sort of white women in her position believed at the time. And it's still not just about gender. So, you know, this episode in particular, I think, is for people who discovered you know, fairly recently through the Dobbs opinion, what so many black and brown people, like you were saying, Sarah, along with other marginalized identities have known for centuries in this country, that this country was built by and for wealthy white men, and that they want to have control over anybody else who isn't a wealthy white man. And if that's you, then we've got some things for you to stop and start doing. So Sarah, want to kick us off? Sure. I mean, what you just said, number one, stop playing the game. If you're a woman, This game is not designed for you to win. So it's time to start picking being a woman first over being white. And we talk about that a lot. You have to keep picking being a woman before you pick being white. And that means noticing and supporting other women who don't look exactly like you. We're talking about all women. And in real life, that looks like noticing when, you know, or which women's voices are not being heard front and center and using your privilege to then hand them the mic. When you're voting, it means putting woman-centered votes first before blindly following down whatever your party line is, right? Don't try to win this game by doing what men are telling you to do. We have to break that game. So let's put being women first 
in everything we do. Oh, I love that. And along those lines, we have to stop letting anyone who didn't lose bodily autonomy, you know, through the Dobbs decision, control the conversation. And that means anyone who's a man, right? This is not time for women to be silent or anyone who's identifying as a woman, right? Or birthing people, especially if you feel strongly about this and are senior in your field, because everyone else is watching and learning from what you do or don't do, right? Don't silence them too through equivocating or fear of sacrificing something, even something small for the good of everyone, right? Because silence is also a statement. So speak up. I love that. Yes. Another thing to stop doing, stop with this performative allyship on social media, right? I mentioned it earlier. I see you. I've seen it before. This is a fight. It is not a meme. And so your outrage has to carry through at least until November, right? Voting time. And it cannot be forgotten as soon as your privilege allows you to look away. You and I talked about this just before, right? A lot of white women have not had to look at this and notice that this has been done to people in our country for generations. So I would say set a reminder in your calendar now to post something about this every single week and make sure you're doing everything you can to show up and vote, make sure your family is voting, make sure your friends are going to vote, and then look around at society and people who might be less able to vote, go and volunteer and help make it possible for them to cast their vote too. We need action. And part of that is absolutely going to be voting and vote for people who will allow women to have control over their bodies. Mm, yes, 100%. So we've talked about what you should stop doing, right? But let's talk about a couple of things you should really start doing. And the first of which is start learning from people who have been in this fight much longer than you, right? It is great that you are here now, but in order to avoid doing more harm than good, listen to black, brown, and other marginalized identities and their voices first so that you learn what you need to know and reinforce who you should be centering. And if you're going to, quote, pick someone's brain or, you know, want to jump on a discovery call or something like that, you need to pay them for their time. It has been historically tragic that we have not recognized the worth of black and brown and other marginalized identities, people's time. So learn and take a moment, right, in that space to acknowledge that I understand that it is our desire to be perfect. It is our desire to know everything. But in this fight, we probably don't. I love that. I love so much about what you just said. One other thing to start doing is use your voice in your own spheres of influence. You have them. We all do. And so we've said it a lot. We have to get loud and stay loud, even if you have the privilege to look away, especially if you have the privilege to look away, because your voice is heard in ways that other voices aren't, right? Misasha, you and I talk about this a lot. We are talking about racial and social justice on our show. There are a lot of Black and brown people also doing this work. And the ugly truth of it is we know that our voices can be heard by certain people in a way that their voices cannot be heard. So we are here doing this work every single week for the last three and a half years. So you also have that privilege of using your voice in a way that maybe some other people aren't. So we've talked about it in a number of episodes. We will have another episode coming out this summer that's exclusively focused on it. We've got a ton of other suggestions in our book. Um, and in particular, with regards to the Dobbs decision and what we need to think about going into the rest of this year, we'll be sending out a newsletter in two parts that's gonna contain a lot of the resources 
that we believe are going to make the most difference for the most impacted individuals. So make sure you're signed up for our emails as soon as you can. And you can go to dearwhitewomen.com backslash email dash sign up, or just go to our website, dearwhitewomen.com. And it's at the very bottom of the page, sign up for those emails so you don't miss it. Mm. I love what you said, but I especially love the point about voice and where your voices are heard. I think that's so important. And it is the ugly reality of our country, but it is the reality. So that's what we've got to work with right now. You know, and finally, if you're sick of hearing this, we're even more sick of saying it, right? But it truly is all of us, or it's none of us. So those people, those allies, those women who asked us, you know, what can we do to be more anti-racist? which led us to create all these episodes in the first place and wrote a book about it and speak in companies about it. If you are serious about it, then you need to step up right now because that question in the end rings hollow. If you do nothing with this moment besides worry about how it might look to others if you speak up or let yourself be distracted with what privileges being white in this country affords you because we're watching and parents, your kids are watching right? So we hope you're with us in getting loud and staying loud. You've just listened to the Dear White Women podcast with your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Yes, we're on social media. And yes, you can hire us to do talks about our book. But the biggest thing, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive our free materials. Head over to dearwhitewomen.com to get on the list.